0: All right, if you have your Bible, please uh, have it open there to Romans 1. Um, I'm going to be looking at that one verse that we read just a moment ago tonight, although I will also be pointing out a few other things in the surrounding area of the verse in Romans 1 and a little bit in other chapters of Romans as well. Uh, Tonight we get the opportunity to speak about one of the attributes of God that, well, it's not the easiest to talk about. But uh, as we're going to see, it is very essential to our understanding of the gospel. We want to talk tonight about the wrath of God. Uh, Doesn't sound very happy, does it? Uh, But uh, I do think there is a a great deal of comfort in it. And here's where I would start just to kind of give you a sense of what comfort there is in the wrath of God. Uh, What happens in the world when a law is not ever enforced? What happens when a law is never enforced? Chaos. The law becomes as if you 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 shouldn't even have it anyway, right? I remember as a student in school, we had a dress code, right? But it was either not enforced at all, or it was very unevenly enforced. At least in my experience growing up in school. And so what that meant was essentially you did not have a dress code. Well, that's a dress code, which you know is not the most important thing in the world. But imagine if. Bigger, more high-stakes laws in our society were just never, ever enforced. No one was ever punished for violating the law. Uh, Imagine if the laws against murder or against uh, rape or assault, imagine if those laws were like a dress code that no one ever arrested anyone or put anyone in jail for. It would be horrible, wouldn't it? Life would be a dystopia like you might see on one of those science fiction uh, movies where the, the future becomes exceedingly dark. Well, the wrath of God has comfort in it because it's the reminder that God does not operate the world that way. His laws are embedded in his character. Okay, his laws come from his character. God commands what is consistent with his own self, and he always enforces his laws, and he enforces them evenly fairly and justly always and that is essentially what the bible means by wrath but we're going to have to unpack that because when we hear the word wrath we don't think of that we think of what flying off the handle i'm i'm in a rage throwing things breaking things and i am uncontrollable uh, well that is not at all god is never out of control right so that's not at all what you, you should have in mind with the wrath of god so there's there's four things i got another four pointer today crazy today's a four-point day Uh, yeah hopefully it doesn't become a habit but uh it's very rare but from verse 18 i think paul points out four things about wrath we're gonna really break this verse down tonight i mean i'm talking about down to the phrase level the first thing he shows us is the reality of wrath the second thing he shows us is the revelation of wrath Thirdly, he shows us the reason for wrath. And then finally, he begins to hint at, he hints at the rescue from wrath, which is what the whole rest of the book of Romans is about. All right. So first of all, let's look at the reality of wrath. Look at verse 18 at the very beginning. And we're going to go literally word by word because each word is so important. The word for is the first word, which helps you understand why Paul is talking about wrath at this point. Uh, the word for indicates that what he's about to say has a very close connection to what he has just said. And so if you look there in your Bible, uh, what has Paul just said in the opening verses of the book of Romans before he dives into the topic of wrath? What was he talking about right before it? Faith, righteousness, gospel, Uh, This is where Paul had said to the Romans, guys in Rome, I've never met you before, but I can't wait to come see you because I can't wait to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Uh, Paul says in verse um, 14, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel to Jews and to Greeks. It's like my duty, I'm in debt to you to go and share the gospel to you. Now, you know, when we hear obligation, we think doing something you don't want to do. But you know, obligations don't have to be that way, right? Right. You you can't actually want to do the things you're supposed to do. What a blessed thing that is. And for Paul, he knew he was supposed to preach the gospel because he had benefited from it, but he also wanted to. He says, it's my obligation and I am eager, verse 15, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I have no shame when I speak about Jesus because Jesus is the power of God to salvation. And then he says, verse 18, 4, the gospel is the power of God. I can't wait to preach it to you because wrath. This is key, the reality of wrath. The gospel cannot be understood. And the gospel, really, you can't be motivated to share it unless you understand it against the backdrop of Wrath. You know the word gospel, it means good news. Well, the good news is only good news because there's bad news behind it. That's what Paul is getting at. The bad news is God has wrath. And that wrath is going out against people because of the way that they are acting in his world. We'll get there in a minute. But for now, just notice wrath is the motivator wrath is the reason why paul can't wait to get to rome to speak about the gospel wrath is the reason why all the apostles were excited to share their faith because they wanted to see people rescued from what they were facing which was the wrath of god now when the bible talks about wrath it does use the same word that it uses for humans humans have wrath we just said a moment ago when i am wrathful i'm out of control usually you know, I, I've reached my tipping point. The, the cup of my tolerance has been filled, 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 and all of a sudden, pow, there goes Stan, right? Are you like that too? You reach that point where, pop, <laughs> and somebody's trying to calm you down and hold you back. Uh, God is not that way, right? God is not pushed over the edge by anything. Wrath in God is not being pushed over the edge. Wrath in God is something that is unchanging and unchangeable. It is always there uh, when sin is present or when sin is in view. Because the word wrath, when it refers to God, is really a way of talking about God's righteousness or God's justice or his holiness as it stands over against violations of that holiness. That's what wrath means. It's it's the righteous God acting righteously, which shouldn't be a surprise, right? The the righteous God acts righteously. The righteous God acting righteously against what is unrighteous. And in that sense, there is no way in which God is tipped over the edge and flying off the handle. No, it's just God being who God is. It's God doing what God does. God stands for righteousness. Therefore, he must stand against unrighteousness. Uh, In fact, Righteousness is itself only defined, or really only definable, by referencing God's character. That's one thing that we as Christians believe. You can't really have a sense of right and wrong, we believe, without the reality of God. It is God that makes right, right, and wrong, wrong. Uh, the world tries to reason at it from a different angle. It tries to say, well, right is whatever I feel is right, as long as I'm not hurting someone else in the process. And wrong is when I hurt someone else in the process. But do you see how slippery that is? I want you to just think for a moment about how slippery that definition of right and wrong is. Uh, because, well, who gets to determine when someone's hurt by your desires? Is it you? Is it them? Is it a third-party group or bystander? Uh, is it popular vote? Do we put it to a vote? Uh, everybody raise your hand if so-and-so should be offended. Uh, you know, it, it really is a definition that is no definition. And yet we tend to try to operate our society on that basis, and I think we're foolish in doing so. Uh, it, it, you really can only say this is right by saying God says it's Right? because it matches the character of God. For example, when God says, don't murder, why does he say, don't murder? Because God created and owns life. God himself never unjustly takes the life of any, ever. And therefore, we certainly aren't permitted to unjustly take the life of any. Uh, When the Bible says, do not covet or do not steal, Uh, That is a reflection of God's perfect contentment with who he is and what he has and his joy in who he is. And he created us to similarly be joyful in who he made us to be and what he gave us to be. And so the righteous God, when he sees these examples of unrighteousness, must stand against them. And it's because God has this stance against sin that the gospel is so necessary. Don't you see? The gospel is needed because we face the wrath of God for how we have violated God's character and God's law, which is based on his character. Uh, This is such an important point. Um, I wish I had time to take you through the whole Bible to show you how this is the pattern from Genesis to Revelation. I don't have time to do that tonight. I'll, I'll just say this. The word wrath is mentioned 10 times in the letter to the Romans. And you can go through all of Romans and read all the ten times that wrath is mentioned and see kind of an outline of the gospel itself. There's wrath, then there's our attempts to get out of it, which fail, and then there's God's saving us from wrath, which comes through Jesus. Uh, You could go to John the Baptist and see how he preached. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance? You can think about Jesus, who, by the way, spoke about wrath and hell more than anybody else. (coughs) A lot lot of times people have this idea, wait a minute, Paul is such a downer. He took the beautiful, happy, joyful religion of Jesus and he made it so depressing. Talking about sin and wrath and judgment. Go read Jesus again. Uh, It's almost like he never sees speaking about hell and the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and there's darkness outside and you'll be separated from God and you, you need to prepare because the day will come on you like a thief in the night when you'll be judged. I and mean, Jesus spoke about this all the time because he too believed, as all the other Bible writers believed, that the gospel only made sense when you understood the problem we were actually facing. The gospel is primarily not about meeting our felt needs. Right? I know this is the way the church has fallen into a habit of routinely speaking of the gospel as if God's only concern was to meet human felt needs, right? Like, are you unhappy? Come to the Jesus and you'll be happy. Uh, are you depressed? Come to Jesus and you won't be. Uh, do you have little fi- low finances? Come to Jesus and he'll help you deal with that and manage that better. No, I'm not saying those aren't problems. and I'm not saying that Jesus actually is a great resource for all of them because he is. I'm saying this, that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is you have to face God, and God is against you in your natural state. Therefore, you need God to save you from God, which is kind of the way, that that is the way that the Bible puts the gospel. God rescues us from God by putting himself in the way of his own wrath. But I get ahead of myself. All right, first of all, that's the reality of wrath. But secondly, I want you to see the revelation of wrath. As we continue in verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath, the reason why I preach the gospel is the wrath of God. But notice about that wrath that it is revealed from heaven. It is revealed from heaven. Um, In other words... When you start talking about the wrath of God, it should not be something that surprises you because it's all the time, Paul is saying, it's all the time being made known and manifest in the world in various ways that God has this wrath against sin. The word revealed there is not in the past tense, okay, it doesn't, it's not just saying that um, God's uh, wrath has been revealed in the past, like for example, at the flood of Noah, although course that was a revelation of the wrath of God he's not saying that just the past and it's not in the future tense God will one day reveal his wrath when he comes to judge this is saying now is revealed it is being revealed now from heaven God is letting people know all the time that he is opposed to sin with all his might that the righteous God must uh, oppose unrighteousness Now, let's think about that for a minute. How is the wrath of God being revealed right now from heaven? You might think of a few ideas in your own mind, maybe a few examples. Let me point out a few that Paul goes on to list, and I'll show you if you have your Bible open, I'll give you the references as I go through these. Uh, The first one Paul mentions is the darkened minds of human beings. The darkened minds of human beings. Uh, if you'll look just a couple of verses down there in, verse, in chapter 1 uh, to verse um, 21. Although they knew God, speaking about humans, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So actually he's saying one of the ways that God is revealing his wrath is he's, Allowing the darkness of sin to capture people's minds. Uh, This is one of the principles you'll see through this whole list. Sin often carries its own punishment with it. Does that make sense? Like sin is its own punishment sometimes. Because when you give yourself to sin, sin takes control over your mind and your heart in ways you never would have imagined. Remember what we talked about with David. And before you know it, like you are experiencing by your sin the, you know, the punishment of your own sin, the, the opposition that God has against it within yourself. Paul says people's minds are dark. They don't know how to think anymore about God. They've completely thrown God to the side. And that is actually a revelation of God's wrath. The second thing he says is unrestrained behavior. Unrestrained behavior. It tells us in verse 24 that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise, in the same way, Gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So, unrestrained behavior in the moral realm, here in the sexual realm, is itself a sign of the wrath of God against sin. The more a person gives their heart to sin, the more their life becomes reckless in sin, which is a revelation of God's opposition. Uh, he goes on to say uh, in the in the next chapter, chapter two, tribulation and distress in the world is a sign of God's wrath being revealed from heaven. Uh, it tells us that in chapter ten or chapter two, excuse me, verses eight and nine, he says there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And isn't this world filled with tribulation and distress? Um. I'm not saying that every time there's a hurricane, that's because we have specifically committed specific sins and God specifically targets Florida for those sins, right? I don't, I don't get into all that kind of stuff. But natural disasters are a sign to wake up to the human race, right? It's like, hey, I'm here. God's saying, I'm here. And I've got fury. I've got power. and I, I oppose the way things are. Wake up. Earthquakes and, and all the rest are the same. Paul goes on to say there's a still small voice inside that shows God's wrath. He mentions the conscience. He says in chapter 2, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on every person's heart. So their conscience bears witness with God, either accusing them or excusing them all the time. So the conscience of a person is either telling them they're doing right or they're doing wrong. It's either making them feel guilty or relieved. And that conscience, though we can twist it and get it all messed up by our bad behavior, that conscience in most people always maintains at least something of the truth. Um, there's, it's a rare thing for someone to become completely conscienceless. Uh, most people, when they lay down their pillow at night, will still have that aching feeling that they've done wrong. When they have done wrong, right? Um, Now, it's also true you could feel that way when you haven't done wrong. There's such thing as a misshapen conscience that makes you feel guilty for everything. That's a different topic. But the conscience, nevertheless, is designed by God to be a little voice. God is against this. Don't do it. Do right, not wrong. And then finally, Paul mentions the the last one, which is the law of God. The law is given as a sign of God's wrath that you can read in the Bible. uh, And by the way, you see this one in I was giving you all the verses Um, in verse uh, 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so the law comes to us and says, this is what God requires. If you haven't done it, you will surely die. If you have done it, you will live. And that puts every human being in a position of saying, "Uh oh, you know, (laughs) I haven't done it. I haven't done it, and so God must be against me. Do you see? Uh, it's like, God, have you ever been riding down the road and all the car lights, the warning lights start popping on? The check engine, the the, the tire is low, which me, hardly ever is it really low, but it just says it's low. Uh, what's up with that? Uh, and all the other, you know, the oil needs to be changed. I mean, there, there have been times where I felt like almost all of them have come on. That is what this is describing. God is making all the lights, Right. come on in the world all the time and if people would just stop for a second and look at it they would realize all right uh this world is headed on a collision course with the god who made it look at how the hurricane rages look at how the earth shakes look at how the droughts come look at the wars Look at how guilty everybody feels all the time, so guilty they got to take pills to get rid of the guilt, right? I mean, over and over and over and over again, God is saying, warning, 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 stop. Listen, God's wrath is revealed, Paul says, from heaven. God's warning lights are on. And so when Paul says, the reason why I preach the gospel is the wrath of God, people shouldn't say, wrath? What wrath? What are you talking about? This world is great. Everything's fine. No, to to be able to say everything's fine is mm, quite delusional, right? You just look around you. It ain't fine. It ain't fine. This is why, by the way, even in non-Christian religions, all religions have had this idea of the wrath of God or the gods. A lot of times what the other religions would do is they would divide. You'd have happy gods and mad gods, right? You'd divide them up. Here's the ones that are happy. Here's the ones that are mad. And that's how they falsely tried to explain the one true God who, who is himself happy, but also opposed to sin. Uh, but in false religion, often you would make some gods just not happy. And I think actually that was a way of trying to release your conscience because you said, well, the storm came, the conscience bothers me because, you know, Zeus has just got a bad, in a bad mood. It ain't my problem. It's his problem, Right. I'll go over here to Aphrodite. She's nice, you see. In Christianity, there is no, you can't escape from that. I mean, the one and only God who, also, who loves you and who loves all of creation and gives you everything you ever had is also the God that says, stop. <laughs> I'm coming. I cannot let my character and laws go unenforced, and I won't. Very, very interesting, very important. Third thing. The reason why is God angry why is God angry in this sense well it says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and then it gives you the reason against what all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men when it says men it doesn't just mean males so ladies you're not off the hook it means humans people The ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this one, so I want to try to get it to you. First of all, there's ungodliness and then there's unrighteousness. Uh, These two things are different, although they're related. We'll just look at the words. What does ungodliness seem to communicate to you versus unrighteousness? Not like God, right? Say it, Bob. No God. no God, maybe, completely just Godless, perhaps. In fact, I think the NIV translates it "Godlessness" instead of "ungodliness." Um, I think those are beautiful ways of thinking about it. Uh, he's saying that the first thing that God is opposed to is our uh, poor way of relating to Himself. We are bad at relating to God which is what ungodliness means, either by completely trying to ignore him or get rid of him or by trying to make him into our own image or by just you know, giving him half our heart or half our life or only a partial part of, of our commitment. Ungodliness. God is opposed to that. Um, God designed us to live for him. God, when he comes to us and blesses us and loves us, gives, a, him, gives us all that he has to give us. And so he does not uh, expect from us a half-hearted response. Remember what Jesus said about being lukewarm. You know, either be hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. You know, either be for me or against me. Make a decision. Uh, or Joshua who said, don't go limping between two opinions. Right? Either you know, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Right? You're either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve other idols. Choose. Get on one side or the other ungodliness is either getting on the wrong side or just not quite getting on either side. Just being kind of neutral, so to speak, when it comes to God. Now what does unrighteousness say to you versus ungodliness? Well, you can see there, unright. All right? Just cover up the with your finger and you'll see the word unright. Now that kind of gives you what you need to know. It's unright. It's not right. Um, Not right towards people. Not right towards your fellow humans. It's unjust. That's another way to say unrighteousness is injustice. And so there's two sides of sin here that are really important to know. There's a God side of sin where I don't regard God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's a human side of sin where I mistreat you or I mistreat other people, or or I mistreat myself. To God, these two things are are unavoidably connected. Right? Unavoidably. Uh, If you mistreat God, you will what? Mistreat people. If you mistreat people, you have and you will mistreat God. When someone said to Jesus, Jesus... What is the most important commandment in the Bible? He said, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, godliness. The second one he says is like it. It's connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself, righteousness. Godliness, righteousness. God is opposed, he's wrathful against all the ungodliness, the not loving God, and the unrighteousness, the not loving your neighbor that exists among human beings. One feeding the other. Uh, if you think about it in terms of the Ten Commandments, this is a very traditional way of thinking about the Ten Commandments. The first four relate to godliness. They talk about how to love God, the first four. Don't have other gods before me. Don't make any idol, graven images or idols. Don't take God's name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are the, how you, that's how you love God, according to God. The last six have to do with justice or righteousness towards people. Uh, don't, uh, you know, honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. That's how you love people. Any violations of those, of those Ten Commandments in one direction or the other incurs the wrath of God. When you break any of the Ten Commandments in any way, God's against you. And God's against me when I do it, Right? That's what the wrath of God means. It's being revealed from heaven, and God is not going to unreveal it. He's not going to pull back on it. He's not, whatever solution he's going to bring into the world on wrath, he's not going to compromise it, which is key to what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, about how we can be rescued from the wrath of God. He's not going to rescue us by compromise. It's got to be some other way, because he can't compromise. Well, notice in the, last, you know, the second part of that last verse, or the only verse we have tonight, verse 18, uh, where it says, the unrighteousness and un- or the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, this is so important. <clears throat> suppress the truth. I don't think I need to explain that to you. What does that mean? What does it mean to suppress something? Hide? hide it. Or hide from it or you know try to ignore it or try to change it or try to avoid it Paul says people try to avoid the truth about God at all costs this is human MO avoid the truth suppress the truth keep it down keep it hidden stop talking about it don't tell me about it don't tell me conscience I want to do my own thing now why do they do that it tells you very clearly because they are unrighteous here's this is this is huge. Please, under, I, I want every every one of us to understand this because, just like when you go to the doctor, the treatment will always follow the diagnosis, and you'll only want to treat it according to what is really diagnosed, not what you know you imagine might be diagnosed, but what really is the problem. Well, sometimes we think this. There are some people you know who are believers; they they believe in the Bible. Then there are some people who aren't, and the difference is intellectual. Uh, Some people are smart, and they just can't get past all the questions that they have, and so they can't become a Christian. But people who don't think as much, they fall into Christian faith because that's just what, they're doofuses, right? A lot of people think that about Christians, right? That, That we are ignoramuses, who don't ask the hard questions, who avoid the hard questions. It's the truly intellectual people who see that the Bible's worth nothing. Au contraire, my friends. The problem with Christianity is not intellectual at all. The problem that people have with Christianity is infinitely moral. The moral person who loves the Lord God and wants to serve him by serving people will find in the Bible a message that resonates with their heart of hearts the person who wants themselves above all things will find magically will find intellectual problems with the bible or whatever other problems emotional problems or you know you name the problem but but don't convince yourself and don't let anybody in your life convince you that their problem with christianity is emotional or social or intellectual really it's not it's moral it's moral always Uh, If it were merely intellectual, then it would be true that we as human beings are just brains who figure things out rationally. But we know that's not the case. Human beings are moral people. We're moral creatures. We live and die by right and wrong, by thinking that we are right and wrong, by having to think that we're right, even when we're wrong. Don't we do that? I just got to convince myself I'm right, even when I'm wrong. That's a moral issue. And just because I have some intellectual reason that I've constructed why I should feel right even when I'm wrong doesn't make it right. Really, it just points me back to my main problem, which is I'm morally twisted away from God. That's what Paul says. God is opposed to the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's where it starts. It doesn't say God is opposed to the, you know, asking too much questions of men. God is opposed to the skepticism of men. Doesn't say that. God is opposed to the emotional hang-ups of men. No, God is opposed to the moral bankruptcy of people. Because he knows that it's their moral bankruptcy that causes them to suppress the truth about him, which is plain as the nose on your face. Plain as day. Uh, Right? This is what he's saying. And this is, in fact, what Jesus taught. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do not believe in me. He doesn't say, because you are too intellectual or you're not intellectual enough. He doesn't even bring it up. And and in a sense, it doesn't matter to Jesus how intellectual they are. He says, you do not believe in me because you seek glory that comes from man, not glory that comes from God. And so how can you believe in me? when all you care about is the praise of men. Do you see what he's saying? It's the moral problem that is driving the unbelief. And it's the moral regeneration that drives the belief. It's the moral being born again morally and at the core of who we are that, that gives rise to faith where there was no faith before because of our moral bankruptcy. This is important. God is trying to deal with the problem of ungodliness and unrighteousness, first and foremost. And yes, there are intellectual, emotional, social, physical aspects to it. But the heart of the matter is people don't love God. And people don't, we just don't really love one another very well either. It's a shame, but it's true. We are completely against what we were made for. And so God is against that. Which leads us to our last thing, the rescue. I think you're ready to hear about the rescue. It's important. I said a moment ago that God's rescue cannot come by compromise. And it doesn't. In fact, it tells us in verse 18 at the very end, it begins to hint at this Reality in a couple of ways. First of all, by saying it's revealed from heaven, that's a hint at something. And then in the last place, by saying that we by unrighteousness suppress the truth. Both of those are actually hints at how God's going to solve the problem, right? If His wrath is revealed from heaven, then that means the solution is going to also have to be revealed from heaven. It's amazing to, to think that. Um, In verse 16 and 17, remember it talked about the gospel and it said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation for, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's revealed, the gospel reveals God's gift, whereas from heaven had been revealed his righteousness, the gift of God in the place of the wrath of God. But then also it says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, Paul goes on in the whole book. This is the whole point of Romans to say that God takes human righteousness and with uh, unrighteousness and without compromising his righteousness, he exchanges their unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. So that someone who believes in Jesus is actually saved, it tells us in chapter 5, verse 18, is actually saved from the wrath of God. We were talking about this this morning. When you become a Christian, you are no longer under the wrath of God. Ever again. He's released you from that. How has he done that? By sweeping it under the rug? No. By dealing with it in the person of the mediator, in the person of his son. He poured out all that wrath on Jesus at the cross and exhausted his justice against my sin on Jesus at the cross so that I could receive a gift revealed from heaven of righteousness in which I can be accepted into God's family and into God's presence. That's how he does it. He does not compromise his justice, his righteousness, his wrath at all. Instead, he expends it on Jesus so that we have no more wrath to taste. Remember when Jesus was wrestling with the cross in the garden? Right? Remember that? (laughs) When Jesus was wrestling with the cross in the garden? What did he ask the Father? If possible, what the cup right it was the cup that needed to be taken away if possible let this cup be taken away if there's any way for me to do this without drinking that cup let me do it nevertheless what did he say your will be done you know what the cup is God's wrath in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea maybe you can list most of the prophets of the Old Testament they described the wrath of God as a cup filled with foaming wine that God was going to make the nation's drink down to the bottom at the judgment. Jesus was saying at the garden, "When I go to the cross, what I'm going to do?" and this is why Jesus was so nervous about it, by the way, this is why he was sweating blood. Or as if it were drops of blood in the garden, right? Because he had to drink down to the bottom the cup of God's wrath against sinners. He drank all of that right down to the bottom. He, he, he died under the, the weight of it. So that when God hands you and I a cup by faith, what is it filled with? Salvation. The cup is filled with the sweet wine of communion with him like we get in the Lord's Supper. As a Christian, we do not have to drink the cup of wrath. We get the cup of salvation. But listen, if you don't understand, though, that the God who has saved you from wrath is a God of wrath, what's the cup of salvation going to mean to you? How is that going to transform your life? Uh, Look back at the, the apostles. Look back at all the periods of church history when the church was... Awakened and revived I mean, times of revival almost always those times of revival are based on people waking up to the wrath of God and the deliverance of God from wrath Right revivals aren't hey guys, Jesus is here to make you happy. Let's be happy. I know you're sad people. So let's get happy Or you're, you're poor. Let's name it claim it. You'll get rich come to Jesus that ain't never caused a revival Here's a revival the burning hot wrath of God is coming, and you know it. Are you ready? He drank the cup. That has started revivals. For example, have you ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards? If you haven't, whew, go do it. Do it. I-, I challenge you to do it. It's a wonderful sermon. And actually more hopeful than it sounds by the title. Uh, Read to the end and you'll see what I'm talking about. But it it started the Great Awakening, or it was one of the sermons that started the Great Awakening in the 1740s in America because he got up and talked to people about how God could and should send them all to hell. But he didn't because of mercy. Alex, you were going to say something? Yes. We think of his perfect love, but yeah. he will execute wrath. Yes, he will. Perfectly. Yes, he will. Yep. Yeah, and in an amazing way, he wouldn't be loving if he didn't, right? That's another whole other thing we could go down, you know, is that really God can't be love unless he has wrath, because what, what does a parent do to a child, for a child who's being attacked? You know what I'm saying? Uh, that, that parent has wrath. You don't talk about mama bear for no reason, right? Uh, And, and, you know, as they say, hell hath no fury, right? And that's what it's talking about, how God's fury is that type of fury. Hell is that type of fury. It's a fury that comes from love and a defensiveness over his honor and his creation. So very good point, Alex. God does all things perfectly, love as well as wrath. Well, we run out of time. It's a beautiful topic, but... um, Next week, we'll turn the page and look at the love of God. So, great segue.